you're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Olga Zilberborg about her latest book, Like Water and Other Stories. The book was named a finalist for the 2019 Forward Indies Book Award, and Olga's other writings have received many awards. Her writings have also appeared in numerous publications, including World Literature Today, Lit Hub, and the Alaska Quarterly Review. She's published four short story collections in Russian, and like Water and Other Stories, here is her English language debut. Welcome to the show, Olga. Uh, thanks, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with something that I try to ask most writers, because we have a lot of listeners who are writers themselves or want to be writers. Um, can we talk about your writing habits? You know, how often do you write? And, you know, do you have a favorite place to write? Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, th these days I've been working on a novel, so I try to keep my hours very, very uh, regular, and I just uh, 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 go between nine, 9 and about 1, and usually it's probably closer to 10, 10 to 1. And... Um, and I uh, work, I have a desk in, uh, <laughs> in my bedroom, which is pretty cozy, actually. I really enjoy the space. So you write from home? Yes. Okay. Right? After well, COVID. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned something, so let me ask a question that I hadn't thought of before. You're working on a novel. That would be your first novel? Uh, yes. Hopefully first completed novel. I, I, I'm... One of those people who I uh, who have started many first first chapters. I've written many first chapters, but this is actually moving far beyond the first chapter. So I have I have good hopes. Okay. Well, here here's a question for you then. Do you what is the difference? Because you've successfully written some short stories. What do you think the biggest difference is in writing the short story form versus the novel form? Um, I um, for, for me, I think it's really spending time with the characters and working out a lot more details uh, about my characters than I do in my uh, short stories. Um, and yeah, that's that's you know, it's it's taking me a lot of uh, a lot of drafts to to uh, be able to see them as real people. <laughs> uh -huh. Well, you know, so you're a professional writer, but I've had many writers tell me this, and I'll be curious to get your take on it. Um, if they create a good character, they say, the character actually helps write the story. Uh, it's, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't, I might revise the, I might revise the statement after I finish. Uh, I, I, I have a story in mind and I'm creating the characters to play a part in the story. So, Okay. Um, but yeah, but I'm open. I'm open for that to happen. Okay. Well, I'll be curious what you think when you're done. Well, let's get back to your, your book of short stories. And I have some general questions there. So you were raised in the former Soviet Union, and I assume your first language was not English. When you wrote these stories, uh, we're going to discuss today, did you write them first in English or did you write them in Russian and then translate? Uh, yeah, the stories in the book are uh, all English first. I, I do sometimes still write in Russian, uh, and they have a handful of those stories that I've written in Russian first. But most of these uh, stories, I mean, all of these stories, actually, are English, English originals. Okay. Well, let me follow up on that, because I heard an interview the other day, uh, I believe it was on NPR, with the um, uh, Hispanic actor, Javier Bardo, and he was asked... Um, 
you know, to discuss having to learn English in order to act in American films. And I was surprised when he said that um, using English gave him much more freedom uh, because he was not invested in some of the words as he might have been uh, in his native language, Spanish. Does that resonate at all with you in, in writing this book in English? Uh, yes, very much so. It was uh, particularly uh, freeing at first when I came to writing. Uh, I, 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 I think uh, finding English, finding that I could write in English really freed me up to write uh, a lot more creatively than I could have done in Russian uh, at the time. With, with this book, and as I'm going forward in my career, I also I can't help but find uh, that working in a second language is a, a little bit of a limitation. Uh, and um, I am uh, I'm um, learning at the moment a lot from reading translators and you know tra- books and translation from Russia and seeing how translators handle certain you know certain uh, issues that I have with sentence structure and certain issues that I have with particular terminology. You know, the, the, I, I am writing my novel. Uh, it's very much set in, in, in Russia, and as are many stories in this book. And so weird, you know, weird terms come up that <laughs> that don't have equivalence, and, you know, and it's really interesting to see um, what translators have to teach me about using English for my purposes. That's fascinating. Well, let, let's get to the book again. So right at the outset, you have put in an artist statement at the front of the book, and in particular you write, at least in part, that, quote, Typically, we think of published stories as finished, but as most writers know, a finished story is a kind of fiction. In the process of maintaining a dual bicultural identity, the artist never fully adapts, never fully belongs, and never stops becoming, close quote. Now, to what extent are these stories a reflection of that for you, of striving to adapt, to belong in your adopted country? You know, it's, it's really interesting um, to think about it in this way. I, um, I think what I, <laughs> uh, the, the way I, I heard that statement uh, in, in my head had a somewhat different uh, intention. Um, that um, for me, I think writing is about resistance to adaptation and, and being the artist. Is a resist is a certain resistance to adaptation. My first my first career in the U.S. was in business. I, I had a degree in international business and I worked in market research for a while. And um, I was very young at the time, and I it was I was um, I, I I was so intent on becoming fully American. I had even considered for a moment changing my name from Olga to something like. Ellen or something, something less <laughs> uh, less ethnic. But but uh, you know, I felt at the time was a limitation in my in, in my success and my future success. But uh, luckily, I I I, <laughs> I had time to to think about all of that. And I, I when I found writing and when I returned to writing and when I returned to studying literature and studying culture, um, you know, my my confusion about my identity. Um, helped me to, you know, well, it, it, it found its way um, uh, onto the page. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm talking about, I think, when I'm talking about um, never fully adapting. I think, the, the, I think writing and, and dealing with Russian literature or Soviet literature or, 
just difference between literatures uh, is, is something that has been a tool for me to um, find a unique way uh, to 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 um, adapt to, to well adapt I guess adapt or resist adapting to my surroundings. Okay. Well, before I get you to read an excerpt, let me ask you one other question. By my count, and I hope I'm right, there are actually 52 stories in this collection. And how did you go about deciding the order? Uh, I've interviewed other authors with short stories, and I think pretty much every one of them has said, even if they weren't aware at the outset, that they found out that the order had some significance. Is it, Was that true for you as well? Um, I was very intentional, yeah, about the order. Uh, I wanted the so in my collection, I think no single story captures all of the themes uh, in the 52 stories. And so um, I, I put them together in a way that um, invited the reader in uh, and provided some movement, you know, into the book. And then I tried to braid them uh, in, in the ways um, that they hand, hand some themes off from one to, to another uh, and and so the book starts, it, it ends in a different place um, where it begins. And the other part about it is when I wrote the artist statement, I I imagined it being sort of like a you know a artist statement in a gallery where all of these stories are hanging <laughs> as paintings in a you know on a wall of a museum, and you can you can mm, enter a world. Uh, through that. So that's, you know, so that that, that was my other uh, metaphor image, mental images I was trying to to uh, figure out how to pre- present them. Well, I think you succeeded at it, and I actually listening to you, I like the word braided, because that's kind of how I felt, that they were interacted, and I mean, uh, interconnected in such a way. All right, well, can I get you to read um, an excerpt from one of the stories? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll um, uh, I was thinking of reading the um, a short story called Graduate School. Okay. Uh, it, it should take about four minutes. I, if, yep, uh, go right ahead. Uh, graduate School. The English department had a stench to it. It was the morning after spring break, and Sonia had put off reading the essays far too long. She sat down in, in the fa- faculty reading room where people could see her at work, and pulled out a green pen. Her comments would be generous, insightful, plainly phrased. But the essays were awful. One 18-year-old argued that people who didn't believe in God were inviting misery and suffering into their lives. Another, a young man, wrote, Thus, school uniforms are necessary to protect women from dressing however they want for their own good. Sonia lifted her head. The reading room was empty. That afternoon, a biohazard truck obstructed the exit from the humanities building. Sonia went home to drink wine and read her email. She'd been collecting rejection letters from the PhD programs she'd applied to. Waiting in her inbox was the last of the bunch. A PhD in literature was likely to land her six years later in the same job, reading the same essays. The only difference would be that a PhD made her eligible for a tenure-track position. She would never see the end to grading. Perhaps these rejections were a blessing in disguise. It was time to move on from teaching. Once, 
she'd held a position in market research. Returning to that work, she could quadruple her income while regaining her nights and weekends. She could. She opened her email. It was an acceptance. Sonia had been accepted to comparative literature program, full funding for two years, a rural town across the country known for heavy snowstorms, star faculty, a small program that encouraged cross-departmental collaboration, opportunity to apply for funding to study abroad. We were impressed with your writing sample and would love to have you. The last email in Sonia's inbox was from the president of the university where she was an adjunct. She was saddened, oh, he was saddened to inform the dear campus community that a faculty member had been found dead in her office in the humanities building. Deborah Polk, 62 years old, had contributed to the university's success for the past 29 years. The university police chief said that the death appeared to have been the result of natural causes. Deborah had no immediate family. Short-term counseling was available for employees, including adjunct instructors, through Life Matters, the university's employee assistance program. A 1-800 number was provided. Spring break, Sonia thought. Deborah's body must have stayed rotting behind the closed doors of her office through the spring break. Nobody, not a student, not a janitor, not a fellow faculty member, had approached the door of her office in that time. Sonia went for that bottle of wine and poured herself a glass. Deborah Polk's death was Deborah Polk's death, and was it so bad? Lots of people died doing their jobs, the jobs that they loved. Sonia's life was Sonia's life. She and Deborah Polk had little in common. Excellent. I really enjoyed that one, um, as well as the next one, which it kind of bleeds over into. All right, so let me, let's talk about the short story idea itself. Some of these stories are real short, um, you know, like a paragraph or two. And, and I know one of them is Her Left Side and then another one called Stroller Selection. Do you, when you get to the shorter stories, and in fact, one of them is even one sentence long, which I'm going to kid you about here in a second. When you do the shorter versions like that, are you considering those stories, personal narratives, reflections? What, what do you call them? I love this question because it really gets to the heart of well, what is a short story, right? And it's you know, and it's so um, so people can argue about this. You know, I, I studied a little, uh, narrative theory for a little bit, and they pay attention to these conversations, and it really gets us to really interesting questions. When I write, um, I, I actually I often think of these stories as as short short novels, or maybe these. Uh, these are, none of these are my my unsuccessful first chapters, but that's that's um, <laughs> that's <laughs> sort of how I, I imagine them. Each of these could be a novel, even a story like *For Love Side*. You know, it has the Russian immigrant who is pregnant, and who, you know, this whole story is her considering her breakfast, and they pack in a little bit of her background into that. That you know, uh, she's she's a, she's lying in bed at night and just trying to figure out what will make her feel good in the morning uh, at breakfast. Uh, and, and um, you know, I'm imagining, uh, you know, maybe something like a, <laughs> a postmodern novel where the whole 
novel happens and you know in her mind and and um you know the night is taken out by her ruminations on the past i'm I'm glad i didn't write that novel but i did i did get you know two paragraphs on the page and um well you know what it does at least it did for me and i think it would for others is you've given us almost like an entree into our imagination so we read the paragraph or the second you know two paragraphs or the one sentence and then we go hmm okay and your mind kind of takes it from there because you've developed it so well well one of these stories is actually only one sentence long and i have to tease you a little bit it's entitled <laughs> a b minus and um i know from your biography that you have children so i'm going to read this story uh, something I don't normally do, but here's, a, here's the, uh, the story in its entirety. Quote, the test of motherhood consists of five oral and five written parts. Close quote. That's the story. Are you telling us that that's the grade you gave yourself? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's all out there. Um, it is also, you know, once it becomes a story, though, it's, you know, uh, the, the, you know that, that, that's the... Um, that the, the the funny thing that happens, right? It is who who is grading this person, and what are the, the circumstances uh, around around this? You know, is she really in a test? You know, in a in a classroom? Well, um, I just thought it was hysterical. <laughs> I don't have any children, and I'm obviously not a mother. But when I read it, I thought, okay. She is grading herself, and this is really humorous, the five written and five oral parts. I've got to believe that, that ladies reading this who are, who are mothers will find that uh, interesting as well. But that leads me to another question. How much of, and I ask all writers this, how much of your writings in this, this group of short stories are autobiographical? And I say that in part because as I read the collection, uh, you cover motherhood. You cover immigration and you cover other things that from reading about you seem to be at least anchored in some way in your life. Yeah, I mean, that's a totally, <laughs> that's a totally fair uh, question. As I use my biography, I mean, I, I write stories as I go along. It's a, it's a way of reflecting on the world. None of, I would say that you know, none of the characters are really me. Um, the, the, you know, for instance, I've never actually been an adjunct professor. Uh, I, I've dreamt of being an adjunct professor. For me, I think uh, stories is a place um, where I consider, you know, in, in part, some paths not taken, or um, I, I often just use... Uh, if I have an interesting character in the situation, I use details from life, from my own life, to um, you know, to uh, enrich the story. So I, I, I would say uh, ideas come first, and then <laughs> I just use whatever convenient materials around, and you know, stuff that I know from from um, you know my own reality, my own world is you know, is, is the most convenient. <laughs> well, that's, that's where many ideas come from, you know, yeah. from conversation, something somebody says or yeah. right. some experience. All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep with this autobiographical theme for a moment. In one of the stories, which I really like, you, it, which is entitled My Mother at the Shooting Range, um, the story ends with the mother in the story admonishing her daughter to have a child saying basically you know, the daughter somehow owes that to her parents so that they can become grandparents. And then in a second story called Cream and Sugar, you write about a mother's visit to America and her observations of it. 
And I sense, now maybe it's just me, some tension in the mother-daughter relationship in both stories. I don't know if that's true for you, but do you use your writing at all to work through such personal or family issues, assuming they exist? <laughs> um, I, um, I mean, sure, but <laughs> I also should say that my mother is one of my first readers, and I work with her very closely on translating these stories. Uh-huh. So she's uh, she's very very much involved in my process. We do have a close relationship, uh, and you know that's not to say that issues don't come up. But but um, um, you know the the these the, but these stories I often again I often uh, use um, like mother daughter relationship as a nice container to. Um, within which I, I try to pack stranger stories that may not have an internal dramatic engine. Uh, for instance, that inherited story that I had in, in My Mother at the Shooting Range is a story about a girl growing up in post-war Leningrad. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, she, she's, she's addicted to, to, to going to the shooting range uh, where men, uh, you know, shoot, shoot at targets and it's a very masculine space. And I could have, you know, how, you know, it's it's a really for me, it's a very striking moment and a very striking scene. And in writing this, you know, where could I, how how, how could I uh, make it instantly gripping to the reader and also make meaning out of it? So one one plot, you know, that that instantly comes to mind, of course, is you know, whenever you have men and 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 little girls or something, you know, like related to sexual abuse. But I don't want to use that. That's not my story. It's not something that I, right. I, I can write. But uh, so, so mother-daughter, so, so, and my question was different. Like, so what can I do with the story? How, why does the story get transmitted? How does the story get trans, gets transmitted? How, how does her experience get transmitted? So the mother-daughter um, container was the story that, you know, that I landed with, or, you know, that, 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 well, I, I think um, the, I think yeah. the stories succeed, even if they're not autobiographical, because they're universal themes. I, I mean, at yeah. least that's what I got out of them. All right, so can I get you to read another excerpt sure. from, from another one um, of the stories? A couple of I minutes, have, if you have. Yeah, I'll I'll read uh, I'll read companionship. That that that's a very short one. Okay. Um, and <laughs> it it does feature a character named Michael. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite all right. <laughs> all right, companionship. At three years old, Michael did decide to return to his mother's stomach. His mother shifted things around and made room under her heart. She lived a mostly stationary lifestyle, and so accommodating Michael was no problem. In fact, she appreciated the companionship. Michael never complained about the lack of exercise and the diet of bread and cheese. Unlike most children his age, he'd found independence overrated. So what if he'd already had the skills of using the knife and fork? He'd never particularly grown fond of walking. His body was bluish-green from all the falls. Dangers loomed. Dirt had seen a rat picking at their trash bin, and mice and raccoons haunted the playground. Toilet training was definitely much more trouble than it was worth. He was happy to let his mother take care of these practical aspects of life. Reunited in body, Michael and his mother did all their favorite things. 
They stayed in the large orange chair and rocked and rocked. They read fairy tales and adventure stories. They composed letters to friends in faraway places. He appreciated having access to his mother's vocabulary and understanding. In his turn, he provided emotional support. Having made himself comfortable, he could afford to share. Whenever his mother grew scared or felt lonely and sad, whenever her breathing signaled anxiety, Michael shifted to remind her of their togetherness. I love you so much, his mother would say. She patted her belly the way he liked. Her love for Michael brought his mother great pleasure, and knowing that pleased him. Another good one. Okay, well, we, we're going to run out of time here in a little bit, but I have, um, I have a question or two about your final story, actually the title of the book, Like Water. In that story, um, you write that, quote, even though I left the Soviet Union almost 30 years ago, oh, I should say your character, um, you write, even though I left the Soviet Union almost 30 years ago, my heritage still takes up the greater part of who I am, close quote. So, Back to a question we kind of nibbled at. So how does your experience growing up in the Soviet Union color your views about writing about life in America? Um, so, yeah, so one, so I went, uh, that line was a little bit of a fiction. Okay. <laughs> but that, that being said, I do, I actually do uh, deal a lot with contemporary Russian literature and uh, Soviet literature. I grew up actually reading mostly Soviet books, Um as opposed to Russian classics. I did read a fair amount of classics, but uh, what I really loved were, <laughs> were Soviet adventure, adventure uh, and teen, uh, teen novels and a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that's uh, hard to read today, but, but um, they created, you know, they created an alternate reality. Uh, it, 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 was, it wasn't fiction. There was supposed to be socialist realism, but, but they did create a Soviet Union that never really existed. And I, I'm endlessly fascinated by this, this gap between, you know, what, 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 what functions as a realistic story or reality and what is actually um, a fiction, <laughs> as, as I'm sure most writers are. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to... You know, I'm I'm creating. I'm always aware that when I'm writing, I'm creating my work, my own world, my own reality. Mm -hmm. um, well, let me let me end with this question. I I often ask writers. Um, so, and and it, it's relevant actually to that story, to like water, uh, because you you ask in the question, how does one explain one's home? And you say the only way I know how is to tell stories. So. What purpose does telling your stories, writing them out, serve for you? And, and I mean that both on a personal level, um, you know, in telling us about yourself, but equally important, you know, what are you telling about yourself about yourself? What do you learn from your writing about yourself? Um, yeah, and <laughs> I think what, what I, I, you know, in a way, uh, this goes back to my previous answer, but I think I am creating myself or creating my world around me at, at the same time as I'm writing. I'm, I'm you know, that, that, and that may be, um, you know, culturally, I think, also a little bit different um, approach to writing, maybe. I, 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 it's, it's a little bit hard to talk in, in broad terms, but 
uh, I don't necessarily think I'm reflecting reality on I'm I'm writing about uh, myself as much as I am um, with every story I, I I create a new sense of self or a new a new idea. I, I'm pursuing a new idea uh, or with this with that story like water. Uh, it was a big there was a big discovery that I was making as I was writing it, and it's a strange discovery to be making in my forties. It had to do with sexual identity, as the way you know we discuss it in the um, U.S. But uh, it's the language um, and the language of it and the American conversation around it um, made me trans made me see it with different eyes some experiences of my childhood and my adulthood and I'm very aware that I'm layering a contemporary American way of talking about identity onto something that I didn't I, I experienced in a really different way in a really different uh, mental and emotional way uh, growing up. So um, that's so. So I'm combining different uh, spheres of experience, and and I'm uh, trying to yeah mold them together and see what happens. <laughs> and learning, I guess, right in the process. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Um, you have been listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tuse, and I've been really privileged to interview Olga Zilberborg about her book of stories entitled Like Water and Other Stories. Thank you, Olga. Thank you so much, Michael. This was wonderful.